And out of that darkness, I hear my six-year-old son say to me, Daddy, can Jesus come into a broken heart? And you know, it was, it was almost like in a distance. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace that you have bestowed upon us, and I, I praise you for this, because apart from me, we can do nothing. And that is Jesus those are Jesus' words, and they are true, as are every other word. We are a sinful people, and we live in a day when the love of God, which is so precious, smothers the idea of who we are in Adam. Lord, I pray that you would awaken the church, bring revival, bring us back to life, open our hearts and our eyes those of us who have been redeemed, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who have brought, been brought into a relationship with the living God and have had no part in that return. I know, Lord, that you are the God who places a new heart within us. That is the new covenant. And from there, we make choices. We're set free to love you or deny you. Lord, I don't understand all the details of that, but I know that you're sovereign, and I know that we are responsible. Lord, make us a people who are responsible. Make us a people who rise again by your, your resurrection. Make us worthy so that in that day we will hear more of well done, good and faithful servant and seeing our deeds go up in smoke. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 54, um, and the title is Broken by the Book. Broken by the Book. Selected scriptures are used. Um... In Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 to 20, very familiar verses with Christians, it says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is uh, not an option given to the apostles and by means of the scriptures uh, to all who believe. Not everyone necessarily is called to a foreign field, but perhaps... If we took this seriously, all of us, more when would go than have gone. The basis of all of this is Jesus' authority, of course, his resurrection from the dead, his identification with Christ, the fullness of the Spirit that brings Christ into human hearts. On the basis of uh, the Holy Spirit's power and Jesus' presence, thereby, we are told, go there for making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all I commanded you. This is so inclusive, really. And it's something that uh, I heard just about weekly when I was at Elohim Bible Institute. President, having been a a missionary himself, a dean, having been a missionary, 
multiple missionaries teaching in the school, and uh, and they had a heart. They had a heart for missions. They had a heart for God. And they were willing to put their lives on the line. Uh, the president, having served with uh, Sudan Interior Mission, and, and among the lepers, I I know these things are true, and I I got to know them very well, and it was a great absolutely great time in my life. And I praise God for having lived there and having went to school there and worked there. And uh, then after that, I felt called to go to missions, as you might think. And um, there was a, a bit of a millstone placed before me in the process. Matthew 18, 5 and 6 says, and I quote, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, this isn't about children, this is about children of God. It is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. I, it's not for me to judge or or have any hard feelings but total forgiveness to what had happened to me but the story is a sad one in my own life but a glorious one as God has a way of using the worst things for good and uh, so what happened was I went with one mission who were very accepting and loving and uh, but I had a deep conviction at that time that I should go to China and uh, this was in the 70s, and they didn't have anyone in the 70s, and after a while they decided, yeah, we, we'd rather not send you off as young as you are with no one already on the field, which wasn't really a bad decision for them. And they transferred to uh, a mission that went to, they wanted me to go to Spain instead, and um, they, so they sent me to a mission that was headquartered in, Texas, and they went into Mexico regularly. And um, so I went down there and met with the people, and while I was there, they informed me that because my wife had been married before, that I couldn't teach or be a pastor or serve in any of those capacities, but I could just go down there and work and share as a, a member of the church. And so uh, having come to Christ years before, having uh, sat before, you know, Billy Graham and heard him and being convicted in a deep way of my sin, um, being part of a Roman Catholic Church, I didn't depart from it for six, seven years. And then after that time, I started to get into sin. And not that I, you don't sin regularly anyway or, you know, in, in ways that are not willful, but don't even recognize it, like losing your temper quickly or in the beginning when you're a young Christian. And so uh, after those six or seven years, I came to a realization that I was sinning against God in a terrible way, and I just was so broken over it. And I went to the Billy Graham organization and sought help and then they sent me to Calvary Baptist Church where I found counseling and discipleship and I woke up and I started to read the Bible and I was which I was never able to understand before and then it, it had such meaning for me and I recognized in a much deeper more mature way now that I was a man uh, just what a wicked man I was and my sins were washed away and cleansed in the blood and I was given new life, and the, the awareness of what I had had, um, but didn't profit me without discipleship. And so then having gone to this second mission and being told I couldn't be used and I was useless and I was unforgiven, it was like, it was like the unpardonable sin for me. And here we are in Texas and out of uh, my usual surroundings and alone and trying to go to a, find a church that was reasonably alive 
and finding churches that were completely dead, I was really alone. And so for two years, I kind of, I had gone on a run. And during that run, I became rather depressed and discouraged and even angry and uh, hurt, deeply hurt. And it said, those whom God would use greatly, he hurts deeply. And I don't necessarily mean greatly as in widespread converts and uh, a, a pastor who has thousands in his congregation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a person who takes the Bible, then begins to take the Bible seriously in all its commands and begins to understand the importance of discipleship and takes people and wants to invest himself in people. Not so much his own life, his own family, as important as family is, but he really reaches out to those who are lost. Maybe it's one at a time. Maybe it's a few. But Christianity becomes serious. You say, isn't Christianity serious for everyone? I can't answer for everyone, but I do know the scriptures and I want to share them today. You know, the those who uh, those whom God would use greatly hurts deeply. Let's think of the apostles. I mean, here they are for three years as disciples and they're just, you know, they're going, they're being sent out. They're preaching, they're coming back to Jesus, even the demons are subjected to us. Who's going to sit on the right and the left? They're full of pride. These are disciples, and you know, people love to bring these things up, and they're true, but they were restored. And so the disciples became the apostles, whose only 12 names are going to be on the, on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. And so you had the 11 and the 1 who was a Pharisee of all people, becomes later, and, um, and the Apostle Paul, who is, in according to the word of God, is an apostle. Then there's David, who's this, the one upon whose throne Jesus sits, the one who has a heart for God. What does he do in his, uh, as he's becoming really powerful and understanding how God is using him, and he winds up, doesn't go to war one year and he sleeps with Bathsheba and he has her husband Uriah the Hittite killed and and it's just a nasty, nasty situation. But he's never released from the throne. He's never the throne is never taken away from him. He continues to be used by God till he becomes an old man and in his old age he's restored. He's uh you know he's He's so old that he can't keep warm, and they didn't have central heating the way we do, and so they, they wound up putting a, a, the prettiest virgin they could find in bed with him, and he didn't sleep with her. You know, the, the days were over of that kind of sinning before God. It was short, but the majority of his life was in the writing of psalms, of giving praise to God, in finding victory in the midst of death, and being hunted down, and and even going to war, and he was a man of faith, without a doubt. He wasn't perfect, and he could be chastened like we all are from time to time, but he stood strong. Myself, in Texas, with an attitude similar to Samson, Judges chapter 15, 16 through 18 says this, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Yeah, I would kind of move a person to a little bit of pride. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place Ramath Lehi. Then he became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and said, get this quote, have you handed this great victory over to your servant? Have you handed this great victory over to your servant? And now am I to die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? In the fall of 1981, I, I went for a run. 
And on that run, I, I said to myself, in so many words, Lord, have I done, have I not done everything you wanted? I left my home and my parents. I packed up the family. We moved to Bible school. And there I served you not only in school during the night, at nights and work during the days, but I also did Christian service once a month in jails and nursing homes and labor camps and campsites. Everywhere they sent me, I went, rescue missions, preached, discipled. You know, I just gave my life wholly that I could to you, Lord. And, and then I said these horrible words to myself, and is this how you treat me? Is this how you treat me? I mean, how different was it from you've handed this great victory over to your servant, and now am I to die of thirst and fall in the hands of the uncircumcised? He was thirsty. I was thirsty. I was thirsty for people who would treat me like I was saved and not like one who was David on his worst day. I had a stumbling block, but the responsibility was up to me. It was my, my attitude that hurt me. And then two years later, I, after reading the story of Samson and starting to come to my senses, I was broken. I felt like a David. I felt like a disciple. I felt like someone who just didn't get it. And so I started to die in my heart a bit. And I started to, I was, I was just, I was broken. That's the biblical term for it. Not one who's not complete or not working, but one who's, and I'll go into it in a minute, one in his heart who's emptied again of self and stopped thinking I'm going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. I can't really tell you to the depths of my soul that my hurt went by both the mission as a stumbling block to me, where I went from completely cleansed of all sin and restored at the, uh, at the throne of God to, to being just a sinner again, at least by the words of men. And in that hurt, I went off the rails. Jesus does not say lightly it's better a millstone or thrown tied around a person's neck and they were cast into the depths of the sea. A, per, a Christian's life can be destroyed by other Christians. We need to take that thought seriously. <clears throat> but in my brokenness and in my pride, I, my pride that had been broken, I started sharing with other people. And I remember one time sharing with another worker how bad and guilty I felt. And you know, <clears throat> Balaam was a false prophet, but when he, he, he was confronted as a prophet by a donkey. You know, donkeys don't usually speak. And the picture there of that donkey is a vivid picture uh, illustrated by God of just sometimes what it takes to wake up a person. Balaam, of course, didn't uh, really wake up. He's not a picture of a person who's a true Christian. But the, the picture stood clear of me because I was talking to someone who wasn't a Christian. Clearly. It had no fruit, no testimony, no nothing. And as I was sharing with this person who I was willing to share with anybody at that time, you know, the hurt I had been through and how I had hurt God again. And uh, the person turned to me, a co-worker, and said, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot about what you have to do, but where's God in all this? Man, that's, that just shook me to my core. And just uh, the words again come to me, you know, those whom God would use greatly hurts deeply. I was destroyed again in my heart, deeper than ever before. And I just didn't know which way to turn. And I wasn't finding it in the church, and I wasn't finding help that I needed. And one day I went out to the store, and I took my son with me at six years old. 
and we went to the hardware store, and when we got there, I said to him, stay close. And uh, we got back in the car, and we headed home now, and it had gotten dark now. And all the way to the store, all the way on the way back, neither one of us said a word to each other. I, mean, I was just stuck in my own thoughts, and uh, I wasn't even thinking about what I had to do, really. I was just thinking about my place before God and my heart and my situation. And then out of the darkness of that car, where all I could see were the, the red lights in front of me and uh, the bright lights from the other side and everything else was so dark. And out of that darkness, I hear my six-year-old son say to me, Daddy, can Jesus come into a broken heart? And you know, it was, it was almost like in a distance. I was coming out of my own thoughts and hearing these words. And all I could think was, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly have heard what I just heard. And I said, what did you just say? Paul, what did you just say? And he says, can Jesus come into a broken heart? I mean, it was just like God dropped a house on my head. And I, in kind of waking up, I looked at him and said, Paul, that's the only kind of a heart Jesus can come into. And I was speaking to myself right there. You know, at the end of Samson's life, it says that, uh, and the dead whom he killed at his death, having killed more than 3,000 people with, just by pushing the pillars and breaking down the house, which fell on him also. And the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his lifetime. And it was God sitting there with me on that couch, and he said to me, Joe, if you're going to serve me in a way that pleases me, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to what other people may think of you. You're going to have to die to what, how the world may treat you. You have to die to all of that. Or else you're just not useful for me. If you're doing this for your own, for your own self, if you're doing this for a, a, to obtain things or prominence or for people to think well of you, yeah, that's not going to work. I mean, all of that was in that statement that I heard, not with an vo- audible voice, but from what I knew from what the scripture says. And so it was with David. You know, it's a hard thing to confront people. And David was confronted by Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 4. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's little ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I mean, is that an awful story or what? <clears throat> now David knew right from wrong. Then David, it says, anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing he had no compassion. Well, God chastened, you know, and restored David. And in 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 9, it says, Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, O God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and David, and if that has not it has been too little, I would have had added to you many more things like these. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and has killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, let me tell you two things in this story. Number one, the courage of Nathan the prophet. Make no mistake, just like Saul, David was king. And he had done a horrible thing. Nathan knew David, I'm sure. Nathan had to know the heart of David. Didn't, I doubt that it didn't relieve him of all fear. <clears throat> but he went. And he spoke to David the king in this way. He prepared him. He set him up. Look, he knew David's temper, uh, being a man of war. And, and so he went and he set him up with the story. David saw plainly what was going on. And then he hits him with, you know, you're the man. You are guilty. David was hurt. Those whom God would use greatly, he hurts deeply. Not only did he run around in this forest being pursued by Saul, a man who he respected greatly, king in Israel, who sought for his death. In all those years, God protected David. David was a mighty warrior. David had the mighty men. I mean, the greatest among them could kill a thousand men. He was like a Samson. And they all were great fighters and warriors. But God in the end says, I did this thing. And so it is today in the church. Without going off too far, this I'm giving my testimony similar to all of these stories. You know, but in the church, you know, it's about numbers. It's about bringing people into a building. It's, it's primarily not about holiness. And I'm going to try and back up that statement. And, and it's a broad statement when I say the church and there are some churches I know about that try to do things according to the Bible in our day. Even though in the past, I remember it was not so at all. But in Psalm 51, I want to take a quick look at what it means to be broken. In Psalm 51, Psalm of David, referring to this whole matter where he had fallen, he says, Be gracious to me, God according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, according to the greatness of your compassion. David is being really aware now of just what God is doing with him later on in his life, after all that he had already done. Now he says, wipe out my wrongdoings. He's wrong again. He reels. He's broken. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Why is that? Why is he saying these words? Had he not sinned against uh, his, his wives, which he shouldn't have had more than one, against all his children, against the nation, against... Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. I mean, he was a sinful man against people. But you see, when God is in view, everybody else goes away. No one else can even exist. No one has rights. No one establishes the law and morality and the right, the righteousness that God alone possesses. And when a man sees God in that way, Everybody else just fades away. Not that they're unimportant or that they aren't made in the image of God or, or God saves wicked men and makes them into the image of Christ. That's not the point. The point is the greatness of God. When you look at the sun, can you see anything? I mean, when the brightness is so bright, as I've had done, that it's just light. You know, all the rest of the world just fades away. And so it is here. You, for David, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Those are great words. We need to have them in our mind and in our heart all the time. Behold, I was brought forth in guilt. He, he knew original sin. I mean, I don't know how you think about Old Testament and what they knew. But th just think about what Paul, what, I'm sorry, David is saying. here. Behold, I was brought forth in guilt. And in sin, my mother conceived me. 
He got it. He got the very important thing that we're all in Adam or we're all in Christ. He didn't see Christ with the clarity that we see today, but he saw that in his mother's sin, in his mother he was conceived in sin and that he was in Adam. Behold, your desire, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in secret you make, you will make wisdom known to me. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. Let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and wipe out all my guilty deeds. I mean, he didn't want them on his slate anymore. And he was turning to the only one who could make that happen. And then he looks to his state right then and there and says, Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. He wanted to live in the presence of God, though he had done all these horrendous things. This is a man who is not now, <clears throat> not only clearly understood the righteousness of God, but the love of God, the mercy, the forgiveness was right before him, and he could go back. Not like Judas who went out and hung himself because all he had was remorse, but David had a deep, deep, deep sense of repentance. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why? He needed it to be holy. He needed the presence of God to be holy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Joy of the Lord is our strength. He needed the joy for strength. Not just to be joyful and happy. No, no, no. To, to serve God again with purity. And sustain me with a willing spirit. He knew that the willingness if he was going to possess a willingness to serve God, it had to come from God. Do we, do we have that thought, that understanding today? Or do we think we're, we're so free in our will that it's our will by which we serve God? Please, please if that's your thinking, hear the words of David and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Do we have choices to make? Are we responsible for our choices? Can we only fulfill, do you realize we, we can only fulfill those choices by God himself? I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that includes willingness. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. Boy, that was real for him. God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips so that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, and here it comes. Otherwise I would give it. God does not delight in empty, hypocritical religion, where one goes to church on a Sunday morning and acts so godly before people and then acts like the devil the rest of the week. You, he said, do not take pleasure in burnt offering. In verse 17 of Psalm 51, he says, the sacrifice of God or a broken spirit. That's biblical brokenness. That's broken by the book. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God, you will not despise. This is what God's looking for. Daily, even if we don't go out and have a man killed because we want his wife, in the sins of the daily sins. So we never get to the point of committing sins willfully. So when the sins that are part of our life, they just nag at us and we're tempted and sometimes it's just temptation but it feels like sin. And so we're tempted and we sin and then we realize that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Just be broken. Just understand the wickedness of your heart and seek God's face, and a broken and a contrite heart, God will not despise. And verse 18, for conclusion, by your favor, do good into Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in bird offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Then religion becomes real. It becomes the Christian when the Christian is authentic, 
Religion is authentic. Before that, it's just empty. Just empty. In James chapter 5, and verses 13 through 16, it says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Okay, so he's, he's asking for authenticity. If you're suffering, pray about it. You know, uh, don't fake being happy when you're miserable. Is anyone cheerful? All right, let them sing. Be who you really are. No hypocrisy. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Notice, then he must call for the elders, plural. It's always plural in the New Testament. There was 12 apostles, and they were making disciples, and no doubt that they were making leaders, because we, we can read that when persecution came, everyone was scattered except the apostles. So without the apostles, and what did they do? They went out preaching the gospel, and they were laying seed. Even though persecution took hold of them, and it came, and many suffered, and undoubtedly many died in those early days, but they did it for the cause of Christ, because they were mature, because the, the apostles had done their work, and so it is in the church. The idea of one pastor is you can't find that in the New Testament. But they have to be mature elders. They can't be young men. Uh, you know, Timothy was the exception. He wasn't the rule. And he says that because he tells them, don't let anyone despise your youth. They would have despised his youth because they understood an elder is meant to be an elder. But there are exceptions. There's men who are brought up by a grandmother and a mother like Timothy was. And so he might have been saved like me, you know, 12, 14, 10, and it became more and more real. So that by the time he was a man, he had been nurtured in the, in the scriptures from his very youth. So the, by the time he's 30 years old, he's well equipped to be an elder. But that's an exception. That's not the rule. And so he, he speaks to them and says, then he must call for elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, this is interesting. First of all, he's saying if he has committed sins... This is about people who are sick, didn't have the kind of medicine we have today where we just rely on doctors. These are people who, when you got sick, you know, you could very easily die. I mean, you could die of a flu. You could die of a fever. They didn't have penicillin or anything like we have today. And so you prayed for people, and they got well. If they had sins, they would be forgiven. Honesty. I could be sick because I'm uh, because, <laughs> because of my sins. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You know, the, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, this idea, and I'm not trying to raise this up so that every time a person is sick, they think they're in sin. But uh, in everything in life, there comes this, this reason to be introspective and to consider, are we living in sin? I mean, I'm not asking people to get all wound up and have a psychiatrist figure out their brain and their mind and how they're thinking, what they're in. I'm talking about being aware, like the Puritans, often aware. I remember reading about this great Puritan. I don't remember his name even now. you know. But he would spend one day a week, total day, just considering his sins. Like, who does that? Well, they did it. And they were, they were the, the, the oaks, you know, the, uh, of the Christian church. They were giant people because, why? They were, they were always aware of sin, not always. But they, were, they understood the need to consider our lives before God often, 
often. It is a serious to a believer to consider these things. Look at 1 John 5, 13 through 20. 1 John 5, 13 20 says these things. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Why is he reading this? For assurance of salvation. This is the confidence which we have before him that if, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Look, in, in 1 John, five chapters, he repeatedly talks about walking in the light rather than walking in darkness. He talks about this is how we know if we keep his commandments. We know that we love God if we keep his commandments. This is about subjective, uh, a subjective look at ourselves, looking at ourselves subjectively and getting who we are. Are we living in pride like the disciples at one point? Or are we living in brokenness like those who ran away from Jesus at the most important time of his life, denied him, forsook him, and in that time, they were completely devastated at the end and broken of just how wicked people they were. It didn't matter what gifts they had. It didn't, none of that mattered. So then on the day of Pentecost, when they received gifts and when they, they pour out their hearts ready to die for Christ, it's all the work of God. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. They become bold. Why? Because of God. It wasn't in them. The pride has to come to an end for all of us. For all of us. So after we get into this place where God is working through us and we're asking in prayer and we're getting answers, he goes on in verse 16 and says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Listen to me, my brothers and sisters, or if you're here and you're lost. There is a sin that leads to death, and that's a willful sin. <clears throat> that's sin as a way of life. Much of 1 John is written in a present continuous tense, where it's not something, not completely, but not something done in the past and it's finished, it's concluded, but it's something that's ongoing. There's a person who lives in sin as a way of life, a Christian brother. And if you want to verify that, you just go to Acts chapter 5, the first time sin is announced in the scriptures. And it's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira who were living a hypocritical life. They were pretending to be something they were not. And I'm not going to take the time to look at it, but in that context, there were, all the people were giving their lands. All the people were of one mind. There's this inclusiveness of all this brotherhood. And here's Ananias and Sapphira in that brotherhood, but they lied about how much they gave. Just lied about how much they gave. It would have been easy for Peter to just forget the whole thing. Well, you know, it's a little white lie. Well, we don't want to make a ruckus in the church. Well, we don't want to send people out. But by the time he was done, Ananias and Sapphira were dead because God killed them. Because, probably because of just fright from hearing what was coming from the mouth of Peter. Because he pulled them up. He knew what was going on. He said it was over for them. And it was. Was he vindictive? Was he hateful? Did he... Did he do? He was, he was acting by the spirit of the living God. In those days, that's exactly what they were doing. They were filled with the spirit. This was a time of revival. If you don't understand that word, please don't think about some charismatic confusion and some phony fake. Uh, and I don't mean to diss all the, anyone who might be listening who are charismatic. But I'm not talking about Azusa Street and what happened in 1906. And if you're not sure of all of that, you need to read up on it. I'm talking about 1904 in Wales where people were moaning and groaning over their sins and they were being broken like people when they're really broken, like a David over the agony that brought them through Psalm 51. And people really got saved. They didn't get all these kind of gifts and miraculous. They got holy. 
Here in the church, in Acts chapter 5, here in 1 John, we're talking about holiness. God was wanted to know just, wanted his people to know just how serious sin is. He made Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. There is a sin that leads to death. God will take you home early. Just like he, Paul was talking about in, to the Corinthians when he was talking about how they were acting at the Lord's Supper. And he said, there are those who are sick among you and those who are dead. Dead. That's how serious God is about when his people have a lifetime of sin and hypocrisy and lying and whatever the sin might be and pride and, and lust and jealousy and whatever it is. It's not just the pastor running away with the secretary. Accountability in the church is something that God wants us to be aware of. He goes on in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God at will for him. He shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say he should make request for this. All righteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. See, judgment is so hard. Because when we don't walk in the Spirit as a result of being broken and just see ourselves through the lens of our own wickedness, discernment can only come by the Holy Spirit. And there is no filling of the Holy Spirit unless there is a constant renewing that takes place because we're constantly bringing our sins before God and seeking his favor and his forgiveness. It doesn't happen. That's not the way. You have to be empty to be filled. You can't fill a full glass. Glass full of orange juice, you can't fill it with water. You've got to empty the orange juice to fill it with water. Now let us be clear. What John is talking about here is not a lost person. He's talking about a person who's a Christian believer. How do I know that? Well, in verse 18, he goes right into and says... We know that no one who is born of God sins. That is, continually sins, willfully sins. Uh, who, who sins and makes it a practice. That's why a child of God, when a child of God falls into that kind of behavior, God will take him home early. I mean, he'll chasten him harshly. He will bring him down and break him or her and bring them because that's not the state of a child of God. We know that no one who is born of God sins continually, makes it a way of life. That's what First John is about, that we keep his commandments, that we love God. But he who is born of God keeps him. He who was born of God, that's Christ, keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Now the knowledge, the knowing that is being spoken of here by the Apostle John is intimate. It's intimacy with God. We, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, and we know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then he gives this last admonition, little children, guard yourself from idols. Guard yourself from idols. So what's being said here is that, you know, we who are Christians... We are believers in Jesus Christ, are to live a life of intimacy with God so that we can hear the voice of God when he's condemning us, when we ourselves are in a state of where we're not confessing the sin that is before us. We all admit, oh, we all sin, but do we all confess sin as we should? We don't want to see in the church an incident like Ananias and Sapphira. But in the church that you attend, do, do people take up a very humble approach to holiness in that church so that we're willing to approach one another? And the people, are they approachable? When a brother comes to you and says, look, you need to 
straighten this out. You need to get a handle on this. And do you consider it? And what part of it is sin? Confess it. And if it's some of it's not sin, you know, see things accurately without trying to rationalize away sin, without trying to justify ourselves, but to be justified by Almighty God. Call sin, sin. And if it's not sin, see it for what it is. Rather than go down this road of the, the Corinthians, the New Testament church, as the revival started to fade away, Pentecost was coming to an end, God's presence with such fullness started to fade away. If you haven't listened to Revival on the Isle of Lewis, story of what happened in 1939 in Wales, uh, you ought to listen to it on YouTube. It's, it's, uh, it, w- it packs a wallop, and it will make you feel somewhat convicted about how we live in the church today. I hope these things bless your heart and you consider them clearly. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the Word of God, which makes us understand things which we need to consider often. We need to consider what it means to be broken. We need to consider our pride and our jealousies and the things which make us less than what we are meant to be, even here and now, let alone when the the souls of righteous men are made perfect at death or at your coming before the marriage feast of the Lamb, when everything changes. We go into that millennial kingdom and we serve you in righteousness, those who are the saints, and how many multitudes will yet come for that to Christ during that thousand years. And then the great white throne judgment and then eternity. Lord, may we be ready for those judgments. May we be ready for those days when we will stand before you and, and at the beam of seat of Christ we'll either hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or we, we won't hear that and we will see our, our works go up in smoke. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that uh, for each one who's listening to this, for each one who's a child of God in the world today, that we all might consider the seriousness of our salvation. And the going church isn't just something we do. It's not something added onto our life, but it's part of who we are. We go to church to not only be for ourselves, not first and foremost, even though we all need it so deeply, to be in the kind of congregation that takes sin seriously and living a holy life so that God may receive the glory as he only does through living a holy life. I ask that you produce this in your people this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.